everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I'm having internet issues, so I'm hoping that things don't kind of crap out on me. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on the on the podcast. I think it's fine. Whatever. Um, anyway, this week we're going to talk about how craft can market your books, basically writing a book that readers can't stop reading and that will get them turning pages and ultimately get them to buy the next book. Um, and, um, yeah, so we'll, I guess we're not going to do too much of this this week, but I did just do the romance author mastermind last week. We'll have an episode dedicated to that romance authors. If you're not attending, you should, it's really, really great. Um, and then let's see what else. Oh yeah. I created a Facebook group for clean and sweet medical romance authors. So if you want to join it, um, go look for sweet medical romance author or something like that and come join me. Cause I know that there are some listeners who write, um, sweet medical romance and it'd be really, really fun to have us all, you know, start working together. So yeah. And Lindsay, I know you had something you wanted to share. Yeah, I am unexpectedly here this week. I was supposed to be at 20 books as we were recording this, but I had some stuff come up and wasn't feeling that well. So doing okay now. But I, I wanted to share this, even though the, our show comes out a week after we record it. So this will be old news to you by the time you hear it. But uh, just today, I saw that Spotify is going to acquire Findaway Voices, uh, the big audiobook distributor where I and lots of other indie authors have audiobooks. Um, and it looks like it, in the article, it said it's on TechCrunch. I'll put it in the show notes that uh, Spotify is bringing, bringing in Findaway's full team of around 150 people with plans to build on Findaway's existing invest, investments in the audio industry. It also plans to bring expanded access to audiobooks to Spotify's 381 million monthly active users. So we've been talking about for at least a year or two since Spotify kind of got into podcasts as well as music, uh, you know, are they going to open up to audiobooks and will we as indie authors get invited to, be, to participate? So this is interesting. Um, actually, I would guess that there's more indie authors on Spotify than traditionally published ones. I, I'm not sure, though. I don't know uh, how many traditional publishers might be using them for distribution. But what do you guys think about this news? Are you going to, if there's a box to click to put your audiobooks on Spotify, are you going to do it? I'm I'm definitely going to click that box. I only have two books through through Findaway right now, but I'm also going to talk to my audiobook publisher and see if they're involved. Uh, you know, if, if they're going to be able to get my stuff on there, because I think I don't think it's I think it's going to be like sort of along the same lines as uh, as Kindle Unlimited. Like some people are going to explode, but for the rest of us, it's just going to be a, a, an additional income, but potentially an additional income that dwarfs all the previous types of income uh, on those you know on Findaway because Findaway is not a huge earner for a lot of folks just because you know uh, uh audible is so much bigger so it'll be interesting to see how this goes and i'm always in favor of another uh you know another income stream yeah i'm excited about it um i think that's really fantastic um i plan to upload all of my audiobooks through find a way just because i like their platform and their philosophy better than audibles and because i hadn't done it before <laughs> um but um just a quick update actually just to keep user users listeners um in the loop youtube demonetized my channel after i appealed and um they allowed me to be monetized for two months i made a whole 50 
$5 during those two months because I wasn't able to upload any audiobooks while I was going on. And I just barely got to a thousand subscribers. Um, anyway, so they demonetized me, even though I was able to prove that their reason for demonetizing me was not accurate. They just said, sorry, your deadline's already passed, even though it, they hadn't given me a deadline. It was just, it was really, really stupid. And my brother, not Josh was like, you can, you can totally fight that. You can totally fight that. I'm like, yeah, it's not worth it. I don't really care. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. So if you're planning on going through YouTube, um, even if your videos are not uploaded anywhere else, just on YouTube, they're still going to demonetize you. That's super demoralizing, but YouTube is just, that's just, they don't want audiobooks to be making people money or something. I don't know. Anyway, you guys ready to go on? Well, I did want to add, I don't think Spotify is going to be a big income source. So like, if you're not making money on Find Away Voice and now, you probably still won't be just because their model is about, I think about half of their people are just ad supported of those active users. And the other half, it's only, they're paying like $10 a month. And that's for all the, that's got to be split across. It's a little different than Kindle Unlimited where you have to actively be reading the book. So, you know, it makes sense to get paid for the pages. But if you think about how often people just have Spotify on in the background, listening to music, your audiobook might just be among hundreds of other hours of stuff they listen to that month. So my guess is it's not going to pay us very much, but if there's any kind of organic discovery, you know, there's the potential for, um, to find for new fans to find you. Uh, like I've left my stuff up on YouTube, even though my channel was uh, demonetized also because a lot of people have found me there, you know, and then they go on and buy other stuff on, you know, if they want the rest of the series or if they want my other audio books, they have to go buy them from audible or, um, the ones that if you find a way are obviously in a whole bunch of different places. So I, I don't think it's going to be a big money maker, but I do think, you know, We'll see. And that's a question mark. YouTube was very, I find it very positive as far as organic discovery because there weren't that many audiobooks up there. And I don't know how big Findaway's catalog is. Maybe we can invite Will Daggs back on the show and, and get his word, get his uh, lowdown on it. But, you know, it might be more of the same. Like if all traditional publishing isn't in there yet, it might also be in the beginning anyway, less competition. So people searching for whatever they're going to search for a fantasy audiobook. Uh, and I don't know how much the metadata will rely. I know you're not going to be able to keyword stuff on find away voices, but they do let, you know, they let you throw in metadata. So make sure that's solid. Um, but that's, I guess, all I have, Andrea. I, we can jump back into the topic if you guys don't have any more comments on that. Yeah, no, Spotify, I'm, I'm excited about that because it's a company I recognize and Spotify has been around for a long time and they're buying find away, which is a company I love. So I'm excited to see what happens, but anyway. Okay. So we're going to get into the meat of the episode here. And the first thing we're going to talk about are book openings. And, um, and I've got that, you know, divided up into two different topics. The first is actually three different topics. The first is book openings that get readers to download or keep reading once they've downloaded. And I wanted us to talk about things that caught our attention specifically as readers. And then we'll talk about things that turn us off and might possibly be turning off readers if we're doing this in them in our books. And then we'll talk about, um, mistakes we've made with our openings. Um, and I guess I'm going first on that one. So things that catch our attention as readers. So I've been reading primarily romances recently, and honestly, for the majority of my adult life, actually teenage life too. Uh, and the things that keep reading include a strong normal before the meet cute, which is kind of the opposite of a lot of other genres. A lot of other genres, you want to jump right into the action, which you do in, in romance too, but it's a different kind of action. So why are they single? What keeps them moving? Are they strong yet still missing something? Why is the author writing a specific book? Basically, 
about those specific characters. Uh, I like quirky characters, but I also like serious and contemplative ones. What I want is someone with a voice that resonates with me. Um, it doesn't need to be overthought or super deep, just realistic to whatever personality the author has chosen. So if the character feels real, situation is intriguing or compelling in some way, I keep reading. And I sometimes am able to ignore typos, honestly, depending on how strong the story is or how compelling it is. Or if I already know I love the author's books and it's going to be a really well-written story despite some typos. As for me, um, I like things to start off in the middle of something um, and medias res or, you know, whatever the, the appropriate term is. Uh, and I know that some people consider a, starting a book with dialogue to be a no-no. Like it's one of those little things you'll see in like writer's tips sometimes don't start with dialogue. I disagree. I think one of my favorite things and it's something I do in my own books a lot is if I can find a way, if I, if there's a line from a character that very effectively uh, transmits that character's you know, attitudes and personality to me uh, in a way that just defines them immediately, uh, right? Is the first line. I love it. Like I, you can, you can get me with a character with the first line if their line is good. Um, I also like, uh, I'm mostly a fantasy reader. Like I, my, my two favorite genres are sci-fi and fantasy, but I mostly watch sci-fi and read fantasy. Um, so when, I'm reading fantasy. I like if the opening of the book can very efficiently convey to me what defines this world as fantasy. Like just throw in some elements that are very natural to the people in the setting, but are very unnatural to me. And uh, just give me some idea of what I'm going to catch in the rest of this book. Because if, if I'm reading a fantasy book and uh, it's not specifically a portal fantasy or something like that, where we start off in a world that I'm familiar with, I want to know about your world in a way that like, we're going to get into stuff not to do later, but like nobody sits there and describes their own world to themselves. But like, if they will walk along and just things that are a normal part of their day are, are, uh, are fantastical to me. I love that too. Just a natural thing. that's fantastic to me. So I guess really overall, the word is efficient. If you can show me what your book is like very efficiently and your characters very efficiently, then I'll be engaged and, and be uh, sticking around. I have very rarely started with dialogue. Sometimes just the character, that line comes to you that's like perfect, gives a hint of their personality. And um, also they're doing something intriguing and it's a short way to let you know. Um, but yeah, I just, I like stories that start with something interesting and regardless of genre, like I no navel gazing, you know, it has to be something interesting that's unusual about your situation, your characters, and it doesn't have to be action. Uh, action can be pretty confusing right off the bat. Um, and then I want things to just keep rolling along. No pauses for world building, character background information, or navel gazing. Um, you can get, like Joe was talking about, you can tuck some of that stuff in, you know, but you just a few words, you know, no paragraphs. If you catch yourself doing a paragraph of backstory or world building in the opening chapter, I would nix it, you know fit it into a sentence or, or just save it. Um, uh, once you're, once the reader is more engaged and kind of cares about the character and their world, they're going to be more interested in finding out more, but until they have a connection with the character and what's going on, they don't care. And for me as a reader, that's a big turnoff. I'm one of those people that I'll grab 20 samples before I actually 
get into something and not everybody's like that. So uh, we should probably say, this is our three opinions. You know, we've been in the business 10 years, we've had duds, we've had winners, we've had series that really take off and other ones that didn't do as well. So it's kind of just from our experience and our opinion, and we're not trying to say like, these are <laughs> rules that you absolutely cannot break. Um, but yeah, that's a, uh, I, I will say too, and I, I always have to remind myself too, not to explain things too much because when you are writing, it takes us so much longer to write than it does to read. We don't realize how much of that we're doing sometimes. And that's how, kind of why when you go back and edit, it's good to like, especially if you're newer, you give it a little bit of a break and then try to look at it with new eyes and you'll realize, oh my gosh, there is a lot of world building in there. Or why did I tell the entire character story in the first three pages? Um, but yeah, you would be amazed how little of that you actually need. You can always add it back later if it wasn't enough, but you probably don't need what you think you need of the backstory. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, I think the whole pendulum, a lot of the times you're putting you when you're in, you're in, sorry, when you're a new author, you put too much in. And then I've seen, and this happened to me, I, I didn't put enough in, in some of my books, but as you write more books, things start to click better and you just instinctively know what readers, what will resonate with readers and what won't. Um, okay. Can, so let's, can I add one more yeah. thing? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I actually went off into the next side subject, but I really wanted to say there's this, I love a mystery as a reader. Does it, whether it's mystery genre or not, give me something to wonder about. And that's, that'll keep me going, uh, you know, above many other things, as long as your character is not making me hate them and you're not burying me in backstory, intrigue me a little bit. So I want to know what's going on. I love the way you said the end. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk about um, additional things that turn us off and might also be turning off readers. And like Lindsay said, this is, it is our personal opinion, but we've been in the business for a while and we've written I don't know, between, between the three of us, like thousands of books. And so we really know. <laughs> I think hundreds, <laughs> perhaps. All right, Joe, you go ahead. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think one thing that uh, I tr have trouble with a lot, and I find a lot of people particularly, again, I'm fantasy and sci-fi reader, uh, too much jargon or world-specific language right off the bat it can really be an issue for me. Like I love jargon. I love by the end of the book that if I've learned all sorts of words, especially if it's a word unique to your book, that like is a word that was missing from English language. Like the word grok was added to our lexicon because it's, it was an, ex an entire concept that we just didn't have one word for. So that stuff is great, but I need you to give me context. If I, I'm not learning a whole new language in the first three pages, you know? So Effectively, effectively teaching me a new language in your book requires you to ease me in. And I've, I've abandoned a lot of books up front because they wanted to get cute and just throw terminology at me that I couldn't understand. Um, and I know there's a tremendous value to coming up with a powerful first line. I've also had issues where people, uh, hard to define, they just tried too hard on that first line and he ended up with like a I use the term bumper sticker, like a prepared statement that stands out way too much. Uh, it's tricky to say whether you did or didn't do that. Like it's very much a matter of taste if it's a sort of thing that'll turn you off. But I've definitely had people who like had a sculpted line that just didn't fit with anything that followed it as the first line. So consistency is important for me as I, as I enter a book. And uh, while I'm not really a stickler for a super duper clean, perfect grammar, uh, I'm not going to knock a star off a review because I found three typos in an entire book. Uh, you're, if your writing has a lot of like gray area grammar stuff, like you're bending the rules almost constantly, I find this a lot with like really complex multi-clause things that are just knocking on the door of a run, a run on sentence. Um, 
I will probably uh, abandon the book if I run into too much of that early on. I, I uh, Again, I'm not a super duper stickler. And also uh, having characters who speak in a way that is completely grammatically incorrect, I actually like. But when the unless the narrator, unless it's a point of view narrator who has an accent, which I suspect is actually a very bad idea, um, I just like there to be, you know, relatively short, easy to understand sentences that I can that I can, you know, digest easily uh, and and n- no playing too fast and loose with some basic grammar rules so that I can, I don't have to think too hard to decode your writing. If I find, and again, I guess if I want to shorten all this down to one thought, decoding your writing is a thing that will turn me, turn me off. If I can't just let it flow into my head, uh, I might abandon the book. That, those are really great. And it's kind of hard for authors to recognize when they're doing that. You know, I mean, it takes, again, experience. Um, okay, so I'm going to use a, a, a recent book I stopped reading as an example. I'm not going to tell, you know, who obviously who was written by or anything like that. But the first thing that really, really turned me off was too many characters introduced in the first chapter. And, and while I was writing my notes, I went opened the book up and I counted. The author named seven new characters in the first six paragraphs, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, it, it does sound like a lot, but as you're writing, you're like, oh yeah, seven names, that's not too much. But you're established that main character. We don't care about secondary characters at that point. We need to know who the main character is before we get introduced to a whole slew of new of other characters. Um, but the first chapter alone had 28 new characters. I mean, like 28. <laughs> uh, that was the first thing that pulled me out of the story. I continued reading because I knew others had loved the book. It was well, well-reviewed. Um, but what got me to stop reading ultimately was the main character and her love interest had to stay up all night, keeping, um, basically tending something all night long. And, um, anyway, the whole evening was glossed over. They were up from probably like midnight or three in the morning until everybody else in the family was, or in the, in the hotel thing was up. And, I was so disappointed because none of that, we did not see any of that happen on page. And I'm like, it was their first time together and we didn't get any details. Like, what did they talk about? Did any soul bearing conversations happen? Did they accidentally brush hands? Were there any sparks, any chemistry at all? Did they build opinions of each other based on how tough the other was or how willing to handle an unpleasant task that kept them from sleeping? Um, and this is applies a lot to romance, but romance is going to be in a lot of genres. So if you're writing a romance book itself or writing romance in your fantasy, sci-fi, thriller, whatever, you can't gloss over any of the firsts. So the first time they're together, the first time they make physical contact, first time their eyes meet, their first reactions to each other, first kiss, all of that is very important. Um, and other things that bother me too much, um, too much unnecessary detail. And, um, I guess that that could go into world building, which I know Lindsay wanted to talk about, but on it, but not necessarily again. So like clothes of everyone, but the two main characters, unless the clothes tell something specific about a quirky or otherwise side character, we don't need to know what every single character in the book is wearing or what their hair styles are every single time the main character sees them. Things like that pull me out of the story really quickly. Yeah, I, it's kind of funny, like, I usually only, you'll only get like three or four sentences of description from me most of the time, if it's the love interest, and you know, like even like long before they're not going to hook up till book seven, like, you know, that's the guy that, and that's kind of a signal to the reader, right? If you, but if you describe every character in loving detail, and then it's like the, my is a minor character that you're not going to see again for 
ever. <laughs> uh, who cares? It just, it's, it slows down the story. And we've talked about this on other shows, like how important pacing is. And it, sometimes you'll read these bestsellers and you'll find they're, they're this loathsome. They're doing all the things wrong that you're writing instructors in your workshop said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And what's often the common thread is often that the passing, the pacing is really quick and they just zip along. There's not a lot of extra detail. You may find there's not enough detail, like it's too fast, but uh, that does kind of let readers just keep reading without getting bored. Uh, I agree too on, on too many names. I feel like sci-fi space opera authors, we tend to be really bad at this. We, we've got this cast of characters like Firefly or Star Wars, or, you know, and we're just, let's start with a battle, you know, on the bridge of the ship with eight characters that are all there at once. And it's super confusing to a new reader who's just uh, Im- trying to get immersed in this world for the first time. They're like, do I need to remember these character names? None of them are standing out right now because there's just too many on the page at the time. So what I would do is even if you've got a large larger cast of characters like that, just pick two, throw them together in, in some situation, let the readers get to know them and then gradually introduce the other ones. Um, I already ranted a bit about backstory and world building and the fact that you probably need less than you think you do and you can wait. Readers will wait a long time for answers. I mean, like I said, mystery is appealing. So you don't necessarily want to like blatantly hold back something that the character's thinking about and be like tricky about it because readers see right through that. But you don't need to reveal everything all at once, especially when it it's not natural for the reader or the protagonist to think about that stuff given what they're doing at the moment, you know. Um, Another thing for me is an unlikable protagonist that will get me to put the book down, the sample down really quickly. It's really easy for something like snark to cross the line into the character coming across as mean. You may think they're funny, but, uh, you know, and readers will cheer if the snark is directed at the loathsome bad guy or something that is somebody that's clearly villainous. But if they're being snarky towards everybody, it's very possible to come across as a, you know, an unsympathetic, unsympathetic character. Um, Joe kind of mentioned readers or authors trying too hard during the opening hook. I've definitely seen a lot of that. Also, trying too hard to be funny. You know, when you're writing, you don't, like I said on the last one, you don't quite realize how quickly things are going to come for the reader that's like, bang, bang, bang. You, you, you know, they made that snarky comment after every single line. It gets old really quickly. So another thing to just watch out for when you're editing is like, oh man, are they having a snarky comment about everything, every paragraph? And some genres that's more prevalent in than others. I don't know how often you come across snark in epic fantasy, you know, but uh, urban fantasy for sure. There's a lot of that. And I, I think some romance too can have those kind of snarky characters. So just uh, keep in mind that that can also come across as abrasive because you know you've met people like that where there's it's always a mean comment like maybe it's kind of funny if you're not the recipient but yeah it can make your character unlikable uh, to somebody coming new to them and not willing to give them a shot to prove themselves yeah definitely definitely agreed my i think i've shared before that discern my main character was very unlikable to people and i didn't recognize it until like a year after i published the book and went back had a fresh set of eyes read it and was like oh she's kind of a brat (laughs) that definitely holding myself back okay so mistakes other than what i just mentioned um that we may have made with our openings and joe i think you're going first yep uh so the first three Book of Deacon novels, and technically all six Book of Deacon novels, are intended to be in-universe histories written by a character named 
Deacon. Like that's why it's called the book of Deacon because it was supposed to have been written by Deacon. A confusing thing, but that's about the title, not the opening. The first few paragraphs of each book are written from the point of view of that character. And they can, they're basically an information dump. They're information dumped with some personality, I feel, but already starting with uh, an info dump, not a great idea. But starting with an info dump in a point of view that the technically the rest of the story is written in, but not directly written in. Like it's still written by the same person, but without the personality. Confusing, confusing, confusing. I know that this is confusing. Uh, and it threw some people because my friend's mom thought that that was a foreword written from my point of view because I'm the person who wrote the book. So uh, I, I know that that was a little bit of art that didn't quite work out so well. I've also tended toward fairly slow openings for my stories where a person's life is depicted as dull and, and the scene ends with an inciting incident or to contrast it. And being dull on purpose is still being dull. So if uh, I could very have, uh, easily have uh, lost the reader just because why do I want to read about this person's work day? Why do I want to read about this person going to the, to the country to take a photo? Even if at the end of the scene, something really remarkable happens, you have to get there. So, uh, uh, if I didn't handle the pacing correctly on those first scenes, I could absolutely have lost readers on those and probably did. <laughs> uh, good times, right? Um, okay. So the original key of Kalenia, which is now forsaken Prince got, um, to the inciting incident far too quickly. Uh, we had zero time to get to know the main character other than the fact that he liked basketball, which, you know, who doesn't. Okay. Some people don't, but I love basketball anyway. So forsaken Prince still moves very, very quickly, but we get a better sense for who the main character is right off the bat. So that's the first mistake I made. And that was my first book, you know, the, that it, it moved really, really, it got in, sorry, got into the inciting incident really quickly. And nobody cared about the main character. Like, why is this bothering him? This thing that's happening. They didn't care. Um, but also in the key of plenty of things took far too long to get going after the inciting incident. I had a character in the book back then that was based on my five-year-old niece who turns 18 next month. So that shows you how long ago I came up with that character. Um, and she stole the show, but not in a good way. There were other pointless characters introduced as well. So I, and then also I spent too much time explaining the plot of the book without actually getting into the plot of the book. So the main character goes to a meeting about what dangers he might come into instead of being thrown into send dangers, said dangers. And it was based off of advice I got from someone who didn't read middle grade fantasy at all. That person said a lot of crazy things happened to the character on the way to get the key. It distracted him from getting the key. And I was like, uh, well, yeah, that's the whole point. Like things are going to try to stop him from achieving his mission. Um, now I can see that that advice was bad, but back in the day, I wanted to make sure readers knew things would be happening to the character because I was like, well, what if that feedback is correct? So this is the version of the book that was published for seven years. It had over a hundred thousand downloads, but only like 1000 people continued on in the story. So I know that that's, that that's, um, so I knew that that was the problem. That was what was going on. Um, I changed that. I rewrote it. You know, I, when I rewrote the key of Kalenia into the first second prince, the main thing I did was rewrite the beginning and my read through is now 75%, which is, you know, far better than it was before. Um, and Lindsay, we are up on you now. All right. So my mistake is, and I don't, haven't done this often because like I knew better already having come out of writing workshops and being told this and stuff, but doing prologues and or not starting off with the strongest character. Um, I've done a prologue where the protagonist that actually worked pretty well, I think, um, where the protagonist was in the prologue and chapter one, you know, I had a, in, 
incident that would lead into the whole rest of the story, but I needed time to pass. So like chapter one was a year later or something like that. That I think worked pretty well because it was the same, it was the main character for the story. Um, other ones though, starting off not with the strongest character because I, I, you know, I'm like, oh, I have this whole ensemble cast and I think this is the most interesting incident that's going on to start things off right now. But looking back, you know, neither of the two that are in my mind were like epic failures. Uh, this, the series did fine, but looking back, I'm like, Ooh, I probably lost people right there because that really wasn't the strongest character. You know, that was kind of a minor character to start off with. And I've seen uh, other authors do prologues as kind of a way, like they're trying to get around the fact that they don't have any conflict or anything interesting really planned for the first chapters of the book. So they're like, well, let's put that ticking time bomb. We'll at least establish that with the villain's layer or something in the epilogue or, you know, try to explain the world somehow. But usually I think, especially if characters are your strength and you think you've got a good main character, which we're going to talk about moving forward, uh, definitely open with your best character. If you're not, if you think there's not enough conflict or it's not interesting enough, you're the author. Make make up the story so that they're opening with something interesting. You can do it. <laughs> That's nice. You're like, you can do it. And I, I know, Joe, you've gotten a bunch of books that have prologues. And so, I mean, if you want to do a prologue, go and read Joe's prologues and see how he's done it because he's obviously been successful at it. <laughs> so, okay. Thanks. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and move on to um, things that make readers want to continue reading books. And um, the first thing on the list was reader promises. And I actually like Joe's answer enough where I didn't want to put in my own thing. So I'm going to go ahead and let Joe take this one on. Ooh, fancy. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if it's an official list, but the standard reader promises that I've, as I've heard them are character, voice, world, problem, and event. So you need to establish a protagonist or an ensemble, and that's your character promise. You need to develop a voice for the narration. You need to establish the world setting. You need to establish the challenge that's before these these characters, and you need to complicate or initiate that challenge. Those are those are the promises you're keeping. For voice, it's that's just the way you write. You know, hopefully by now you've developed a voice already. Writing a book in a different voice than your standard one is kind of tricky, uh, but obviously you can do it. Um, just and if you do that, stay consistent with it and establish it early on because that's. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about earlier, but it's one of the things that will really capture somebody about a book is if it's written in an interesting voice. Um, I like to give the narrator the task of setting the mood in the book. Uh, so if it's going to be a lighthearted book or if it's going to be a serious book, that the narrator is essentially a character that has that tone, even if they aren't an actual character in the book. Uh, Everything else in that list, I feel it just needs to have a trajectory. So ideally, that trajectory is something that shoots past the end of the book if you're writing a series. So your character should have a growth arc. Uh, certainly, you want to have some form of conclusion to this book, but whatever problem or complicating factors in their life should have further uh, uh, you know, implications down the road. So, you know, world the world should be growing and changing each time, especially if you're writing something epic. Um, you should be sort of exploring new parts of your world in each book. Uh, something that I've, I've stumbled over in my most recent epic is that they tend to return to the, uh, the starting town at the end of every book. So, uh, yeah, like just everything about your book should have a forward trajectory until you're actually concluding the series. Yeah, and I think it goes without, without saying that if you tell readers that it's a murder mystery and you're going to find out who did it, you have to do, you have to actually tell people who did it, you know? And like if, you know, I mean, the reader promise is basically the, is the premise of the book. So, I mean, if you don't have a way 
to, I mean, if you don't actually follow through on that and there's little, there's little reader promises too, you know, like if you mentioned that your character struggles with, um, speaking in public, there's a high probability that your re- readers are going to expect your character to speak in public at some point in the story. Lindsay, did you want to add anything to that? No, I didn't even realize that was something we were supposed to address. <laughs> I answered these yesterday when I decided I was, oh, I think I'm good. I'm good. I'm well, I'll be on the podcast. So <laughs> I, yeah, Joe, Joe, I thought did a good job. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go ahead and talk about inciting incidents and inciting incidents is like my favorite part of writing a book. It's, it is what propels the story. It's actually what causes the story to happen. So you have normal and then you break normal and then how you handle the inciting incidents can really, really affect if readers continue reading your books or not. So Joe, I think you're up first on this one too. Actually, I know you are because your text is read. (laughs) That's right. So my inciting incidents are usually near the middle or the end of the first chapter. If it's a particularly short book or I'm going for a particularly slow build, I might push it as late as the, the, a third of the way through the book, but that's very late. Um, that said, on more than one occasion, I've actually had the book start immediately after the inciting incident and instead work my way to revealing what it was. It's a little bit tricky to do it that way. A little bit easier if you use a prologue, but uh, I've only put an inciting incident in the prologue once, just so as you know. Um, before the inciting incident is usually establishing status quo, like the normal that you're going to be breaking, like uh, like Andrea said. Set up a little bit of the character, a little bit of the setting, and so that you have an idea of what this person's usual is like. And that way, when the inciting incident comes along, it will be clear to the reader without any sort of highlighting that this is a major thing that's happening and this is what's going to drive the story forward. It's very, very hard to highlight how strange an event is when it's the very first thing you see. So there should be at least a little bit of indication to set that up. Yeah, really good points. Okay. So, um, so when writing fantasy, the, and this is for me with my books, the inciting incident happened, inciting incident happens a lot later than in romance. So fantasy, this, and for me, fantasy is more complex. There's a lot more setup than there is in romance. And as Joe said above, you need to establish character, voice, world, problem, event. This takes more time in fantasy than it does in romance and romance. In, like to establish world, all you have to do is have the character grab car keys or a cell phone or answer an email, etc. Um, in fantasy, especially epic fantasy, it takes more time, but still there are ways to do it quickly and effectively without taking several chapters. Um, it takes experience with writing novels to learn how and where to put the inciting incident. Um, another reason why we're recommending writing lots of books before p- really pushing hard at marketing. Um, with my fantasy, I usually do it within the first chapter, usually by towards the end of the chapter. Sometimes it's like cliffhanger ending of that first chapter with my romance. It's sometimes on the first page. So, um, because that, that inciting, and it doesn't take that long, like I said, to establish normal for a contemporary romance. So yeah. Um, Lindsay. Yeah, I think even in my epic fantasies, it happens pretty early on. Um, I I know that a lot of times, a lot of the advice you'll get in workshops as a newer writer um, from, you know, if you have an editor or more experienced uh, some author, <laughs> somebody in the biz look at it is like, you need to cut the first seven chapters. And it's often true. You don't realize how much of that first beginning is not necessary. And, you know, the first paragraph is probably not going to be the incident that blows everything up and, and get you on the road, but they should be, like I said, they need to be doing something interesting. Uh, so maybe that's their normal life. Like, um, my, 
urban fantasy series I did for last year, as an example, the main character was scaling a cliff down to a cave with the ocean like 200 feet below. That's her normal life. She was like a, you know, bounty hunter, assassin, killing bad guy monsters. So for her, that's interesting. And there, you know, there's a mystery for the reader of like, why is this character scaling a wall down to a, you know, cave? But the inciting incident was in, is when the dragon shows up. Uh, and there were not as previously dragons in the world as far as she knew. And that sets things off to a, a new level. But so I think that, you know, you don't necessarily want to do the inciting incident right away, but you should be doing something interesting, hopefully. And the more boring and mundane your character and their life is, uh, you know, cause it, if it's not fantasy, for instance, like, you know, maybe your hero's an archaeologist, uh, and then you might want to do something like the Indiana Jones route where <laughs> the prologue or whatever is the character, but it's showing them having this epic adventure before, and then you show the normal. So that's a possibility too. Some things do work better in film, keep in mind, than in books because everything happens so quickly in film. Like snarky characters, we're willing to put up with like the unlikable character maybe a little longer because we're stuck in the movie theater, you know, and it's, it's not the same is so easy to put down a book, especially these days in the Kindle. And, and I will say, uh, do we have something on this? Maybe not. But with romance, I find as a reader in this new world of samples on the Kindle and you only get 10%, I really want to see the hero and the heroine both in the sample. So that can be tough, uh, depending on how you set up their story, if they're in different parts of the world or something when things get started. So you might have to do like two quick scenes to show them if they're not together. I, I kind of want to see them together right away. And I think a lot of romance authors have twigged to that and do that. I see that more these days, pretty often, because that's what you're reading for. You want to know, like, am I going to like the guy? Do I care about, you know, am I interested in him? I mean, she's okay, but you know, you're reading for the, to see that as a woman, you're probably reading to meet the guy, you know, who's the, the cool dude that she's going to fall for. So that's just something to keep in mind too, in this new digital era is that you really want something interesting to have happened in those sample pages to hook the reader and get them to buy it, hopefully. And that's a really great point. And the sample pages is like the first 10%. So it doesn't matter what length book you're writing, you got to have it happen in that that look inside point of view time, whatever. Um, okay. So we're going to go ahead and talk about good villains. Um, what sorts of villains we've used and how they've done. And then what sorts of villains readers respond well to. And I wanted to include this because you have to have, and we'll talk about strong characters next, but you have to have a good, a good villain to make a good story. Um, and Joe, go ahead. Villains are a little bit of weakness for me. I feel um, I've actually written a, a lot of stories that didn't have a villain at all, where the, the challenge before the, uh, the, the characters was the, the villain of the story. Like there wasn't an antagonist. They just had a very difficult thing to do. Um, that said, I've written a few villains that definitely captured readers. And those typically were the strongest books I had when I had a particularly strong villain. Uh, in the book of Deacon, I've got a character named Epidime. He's like a very master manipulator to the point that he's actually managing the other villains, uh, as well as the heroes. Like he's, he's, he's almost behind the scenes right in front of everybody else because even the person who was ostensibly in charge, he's clearly sort of pushing that guy in, in directions that are changing his, uh, his, you know, his plans. 
but he's also, this is a fantasy, he's also a wandering spirit who, who, who takes possession of other people's bodies. So he shows up in scenes where you slowly realize it's him just because of the way he's speaking and the things that he's doing. So it's a, it's a villain that was able to show up literally at any moment in any position, and even as a character that we'd already met previously that wasn't a villain last time. So I've, people particularly like that one. And I've, I've had people inform me that he's the only villain I'm not allowed to kill off. Um, I've also had uh, an over-the-top uh, flamboyant villain named Lucius P. Alabaster, who was just gleefully full of himself. He was a snidely whiplash type, you know, like just he's about being a villain. He, he, he would describe himself as a villain. And uh, he's the kind of character you can imagine. He's waggling his finger and twirling his mustache every time he says anything. And uh, just having the time of his life being a bad guy. And even though he's borderline clownish, he's also smart enough and dangerous enough to be a genuine threat. Like he's able to, to like he's well-financed. So he literally has a blimp at one point because gosh darn it, give that super villain a blimp. But uh, uh, he is a legit threat. He will kill people. He is smart. And so even though he's spewing self-aggrandizing monologues all over the place, everybody has to take him seriously from his henchmen to the, to the good guys. And Lucius P. Alabaster, another villain I wasn't allowed to kill off. So I definitely have had some good luck with those. Um, you've heard lots of people say that the villain should be the hero in his or her own mind. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're writing them. I like villains who are villains because they're on the opposite side of a war or the power structure or the religious belief system, something like that. They're not necessarily villains to their followers, and they may even reward their loyal henchmen well. All you have to do is look at the political situation right now to see real-world examples of this. Whoever you voted for, that other guy, they are a villain. They are like Darth Vader or Emperor Palpatine, and so are the followers, dang it, uh, whoever you voted for, you know? And so that's just something to keep in mind uh, that the villain should probably not be kicking dogs and <laughs> torturing people just for the heck of it. They should have reasons. You know, and I'm a big fan of villains like, like that, where they're just kind of happen to be on the opposing side of the protagonist. And funnily, funny enough, a lot of my love interests start out like that the same way that they're just, they're the general or whatever, the admiral working for the other side. So you've got some kind of inherent conflict that comes out of that just because they've got these different worldviews and beliefs. And I, I love that for conflict. I really hate, um, people sniping at each other just because their personalities conflict or something like that. Um, and I've, I've certainly done, you don't always have to do some really in-depth villain. Uh, I think if you're doing something like heavy fantasy or something that's going to span eight books and the same guy is going to be in charge of the enemy forces, you know, it's just that at, at that point you probably want to round them out a little bit. And but like maybe for a romance, whoever, if there's a villain, if there's even a villain, often there's not, but like in romantic suspense or maybe fantasy or sci-fi romance, there's often a villain in there too. But for a one-off for one novel thing, you know, maybe you don't have to do quite as much groundwork as far as making them three-dimensional and you will find where I've certainly found that it, it's harder to make the villain super three-dimensional when they're never a point of view character or you don't have a point of view character that's kind of 
in the enemy camp, you know, that's their loyal henchmen. And I'm not a big fan of villain POVs as a reader, so I rarely do them as a writer. I am doing them in my epic fantasy series, but I, I tend to keep them short. Um, but it, it is easier to make a three-dimensional villain and really get into the workings in their head if you spend time with them. So that is something you have to decide if you're into that as a reader. Just please don't be one of those authors. One of my favorite authors growing up wrote like half the books from the villain camp, and I skimmed so skimmed. He was really lucky. <laughs> a, I had no standards in because I was a teenager. I'd read anything. Um, and B, you know, it's just you could skim them and still enjoy the the, the heroes in the main storyline. But you probably do not need to spend that much time, give that much more to the villain. I just learned that Lindsay had no standards as a teenager. <laughs> I was not picky. I just read everything then. Uh, it's like in school up into like 20 and then all of a sudden I got picky. I don't know. Maybe that's everybody's so, like that. Uh, that's not true though. Cause I know lots of adults who will read anything too. So I don't know what happened to me. I joined the army. <laughs> I fell on my head, something in there. So it was when I started writing that I started going, this is stupid. And then stopped reading. <laughs> you do become pickier because you have to, especially if you do workshops, you really learn or you become an editor or something. You just yeah. hyper develop that critical side. Yeah. And again, listeners, like we said at the beginning, like Lindsay said, we're not perfect at this. We're not prologue was so bad. Did my internet just cut out? Yeah, you froze for a minute. So hopefully we're good. Now. <laughs> it was just Did you fast. hear what I said? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. So what I was saying was don't go and read our books and then be like, oh my gosh, you're, she did so, he, he did, she did whatever so poorly at that, even though they just said to do it this way. That's not, that's not the way we're approaching this. We're doing the best that we can as authors. And we just want to share what works for us as readers and what does not work for us. Um, okay. So my comment here was that villains are usually clear cut, but you can have a location be a villain. Like the world itself in Epic fantasy can be a villain. I'm thinking specifically of, um, is it Mistborn where I don't want to give spoilers, but Mistborn has been out forever. At the end, you find out that the main bad guy is not really the main bad guy. He's actually keeping the planet together. That was really kind of fun. Um, Anyway, it doesn't always need to be a specific person, but it does need to be compelling. So in Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, uh, the Jurassic Park franchise, it's near and dear to my heart. Even if the movies are stupid, I still love them. Um, anyway, the volcano is the villain or the antagonist. Um, you could argue, someone could argue that the government is by not voting to save the dinosaurs, but that's actually the inciting incident um, because the government is too passive as a character. Villains need to be movers. They need to be what causes characters to do things and not do things. So if you have a villain that doesn't throw up or throw up, doesn't mess up the cart, then it's not, it's not a villain. Um, anyway, so an erupting volcano is pretty compelling. So like Dante's speaking volcano, um, an event, a location, a disease, et cetera. These can all be very good villains and antagonists, as long as the danger they present, uh, present is made obvious. Um, one of my favorite books, uh, reluctant bachelor by Rachel Anderson is about a game show where the main chick is coerced into being, a bachelorette on the bachelorette show. Um, and that the game itself puts her through all sorts of awkward and hilarious experiences. And I, I say that the game itself is the antagonist of the story because it is what is causing the main character to move and grow and be frustrated and have problems. So not every book will have a straightforward villain, but every book needs to have something driving the plot forward, which is usually the villain and forcing the main character to grow and change and act any rebuttals from you guys Lindsay has one <laughs> no i was just gonna say man versus nature is one of the classic oh yes thank types you. of 
not archetype. What's the word for those? Like there's five or six types of conflict. You just gave the name to what I just tried to explain. I was like, (laughs) what is it called? Oh, man versus nature. Yes. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk about strong characters. Um, How we know when we've written a strong character plus our opinions on what makes, um, makes one. Go ahead, Sergio. Uh, as a writer, I know that I've written a strong character when they start imposing themselves on me and on the story. So like when I start thinking, oh, this character needs, I'll give an example in the books that I was just recently writing. I had uh, kobold characters and they were unnamed. The idea is there was a legion of these things, but I started uh, giving, you know, gags to them. I was like, well, let me just give all the gags to this one and give that one a description. And then I was starting to like the character. Well, give me, let me give that character a name. And by the second, well, by the third book, I was rewriting the plot to make sure that character could be a part of it. Just once you start liking a character, chances are it, it's a good character. So uh, when I start having to alter scenes, because I realized the plot didn't, wouldn't flow the way that I wanted it to because that character is in it, it means the character is strong and well-developed. Like you've, I've now developed the, strong, the character well enough that I know what I did not know when I was writing the outline, that this character wouldn't do that. Like you've, you now have a picture of this character in your head that's stronger than your original plot idea. Uh, likewise, when I, I know I've given a line that is absolutely... Uh, like in, in, I've got characters named Carter and Ma and Ivy, and the way that they speak is undeniable. I don't have to put a dialogue tag when some of these characters speak because only Carter would say that. So that's another good indicator that you've really well defined that character. Uh, and uh, and when what someone is saying makes it clear that they are the one saying it, even without a dialogue tag, it's a sure sign that that character is just like it's a character. It's no longer, you're not, you're not struggling anymore. This character is defined. And once a character is that well-defined, it's usually a strong character. It's hard to have a very well-defined character that still feels weak as a character. Um, and uh, obviously, once the book is out, uh, you're going to start getting emails about your strong characters. That's a pretty good indicator, too. Uh, okay, so I think that when people often misinterpret the phrase strong character to mean a character who will win a fight. Like I've read a lot of books where it was clear that the, the writer felt as though like the word strong should be taken literally. This character is an imposing force in the story. And I don't think that's particularly necessary at all. Uh, this is particularly true, by the way, of strong female character. Like if someone is bad at writing female characters and they hear the need to make a strong female character, they're going to assign all of the, 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 you know, they're going to try to show this is a strong female character by having her win a bar fight or something. And that's certainly one way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. I think strong characters are characters that are either interesting or fun to read or that serve an important role in the story. So a strong character is either shallow in a really interesting way. Like you can have a character who is like a side character at the bar who always makes that scene funnier. And while that character may not have any detail to them, they're still sort of a strong character and an important piece of flavor in your story. Or a strong character uh, is just like um, has such depth that the reader can see right away uh, that this character is more than they appear and looks forward to the opportunity to uh, see the circumstances that uncover that character. So a strong strong character is just a, a unit in and of itself that's, you know, you can't, I guess the best rule of thumb is if you can't swap that character out for a different character in the scene, you're probably well on your way to making a strong character. Yeah. Um, 
And I love that, that point you made about the strong female character. Cause I mean, I see this happen like movies, you know, they're like, Oh my goodness, we need to have a mean main female lead because everybody has to have a main female lead right now. But then they forget to give the main female lead any personality other than she can like kick people. And I'm like, that was so unsatisfying. Like she doesn't have to be able to win all the fights she gets in to be a strong character. So I really like that point that you made. Um, anyway, so I honestly didn't think about how I'd answer this question when I came up with it, but Joe hits on some really good points. When a character is so compelling that they're speaking to you when you're not actively writing, that's, that's awesome. And not just their situation, but them, they themselves, not like how they're going to handle what's happening and what's coming up, but you know, how they'll react to that situation. And then when words, you know, they say, come to your mind again, away from the writing, that's a good, a good indicator. A lot of the time, I honestly don't know if I've written a strong character until after the book has been published for a while. So, and it's just, that's one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm working on as myself. I'm like, okay, I can't, I don't know. I don't necessarily know if that was a strong enough character or if somebody's going to be annoyed by that character or whatever. And like I said, until it's been published for a bit, but I always make sure they have strengths and weaknesses. And when I first started writing, I didn't realize what that meant. So I made sure my main character, Jacob in the Cl- in Clinic Chronicles was afraid of heights. <laughs> like he's got a weakness. He's afraid of heights. <laughs> um, that's not the same thing as being overly conscious or overly confident, um, though. And then also recognize if you have a strong character, their strengths will become weaknesses at some point and their weaknesses will become strengths. And that's not necessary, but that does make for a more compelling story. So, and, and the whole point of this episode is not to teach you how to write craft, but to help you understand that writing good craft will, it's a way to market. You can't market books that books that people won't read. Um, but a gunshy character could prevent someone's death by hesitating too much. And a confident character could cause someone's death by stepping forward too quickly. So these strengths can become weaknesses and their weaknesses can become strengths. And, um, Lindsay, I believe it is your turn. All right. I would just have to say Joe hit on a Myrans too. Strong female character is obviously somebody who kicks all the guys butts, including the villain. I was like, oh man, that drives me nuts. Not that I can't enjoy a female warrior character. I've written a couple of those. I do enjoy them. But as somebody who has done sports and martial arts in the past, I'm like, no, women are just not as good at these things. We do not have the strength and, you know, just power to be as good as men at this stuff. So I actually, I love that I've done a couple of sharpshooters or like archery pro women, because that's something I did that in the army. I actually shot expert even with my lazy eyes. So that's something that's not like physicality and stuff isn't required. So that's something that they can do if you want to do a warrior type character. But I, yeah, that's just one of my rants. I, you know, and I'm fine. Like I love some of them, like Zoe from Firefly, as long as they have some personality and stuff too. And it's not like they're, Zena, <laughs> like if I mean, if you give them magic or something, that that's why I like fantasy because then there's an explanation, right? It's uh, okay, she's got magical powers, that's or she's the daughter of a god or whatever, you know. Then it's more believable to me. Anyway, that's just one of my things. Totally tangent there. Um, my answer to this question is: strong characters are strongly motivated by something that drives them to take action. Some of the worst protagonists are the ones that get dragged along by the plot because they were kidnapped or. Co- worse or just swept up in events against their wishes. And you can do these kind of plots, and I have, but you have to be really careful to still allow the protagonist to have agency in the story or they just become so wishy-washy and nobody cares what happens to them. You end up reading for all the side characters because they're more important than your um, orphan boy who's supposedly going to grow into a powerful something and save the universe. But 
Uh, as for traits, you know, the, the characters can be superheroes. They can be everyday people. Or my favorite is sort of everyday people with something that has the potential to make them awesome in some way so that we enjoy living vicariously through them. I do a lot of geek characters who get to solve problems with their minds. Um, but I have done the, the assassins and the warriors and the sharpshooters, the MacGyver types with the talent for concocting explosives out of the chemicals under the kitchen sink. So it's probably good that I write fantasy and sci-fi settings or these people would be out there blowing up your cozy mystery towns and <laughs> romance worlds. So, so for me, the important thing is to also give these people, no matter how strong they are, whether they're superheroes or just the, the genius next door, you know, to give them vulnerabilities and things that they're struggling with in the story so that even though, even as we want to live vicariously through them, we can identify with them because maybe they're struggling with some of the same things we are. And that's why we want so much to live in their shoes and get the victories that they're experiencing. Whereas it's really easy to hate the Mar what is Mary Sue's and Marty Stews, who are just perfect and too good at everything. We all hate those characters. Do not write them. Please do not make your character beautiful, valedictorian, and have three PhDs. How many people do you know that have three PhDs? But for some reason, in the random romance novels, the heroine has to have three PhDs, in, even though she's only 24 and beautiful it's just like why and then it never it comes up in this story it, that's the thing you do have to be careful with like smart characters to actually have them <laughs> be come across as smart in the story and if they're supposed to be smarter than you are like this is something i struggle with because i love those smart geeky characters but i'm only okay levels of intelligence you know so i always feel like oh man i'm trying to write this character that's like way smarter than i am how can i do this believably so that's something to consider if you're gonna write those kind of characters and then also if you're like writing a super you know badass with guns and martial arts you probably and if you don't have any of that background yourself that that may be hard to make authentic too so uh to some extent maybe think about leaning on your own expertises expertise something like that if at all possible but you know the best thing the main thing is make sure that your characters all have um, goals and motivations and they're driven to do something and that's kind of a lot of the times that's what creates a really cool story is and that's what gets them into trouble a lot of the times too is they're trying so hard to accomplish the things they want and here's this mean author <laughs> throwing obstacles in their path all the way through poor characters but that's what makes the compelling stuff that we want to read yeah and um you pretty much everything you just said reminded me of Harry Potter because you know, I'm like Harry Potter doesn't really do anything until a couple of books into the series but also I mean she did a really great job of making him not be able to do everything and anything he's not really really great at anything except Quidditch um but it was disappointing that the only spell he ever truly mastered was Expelliarmus and I was like come on like if he starts mediocre, and this is just general advice, if your character starts really mediocre and is not good at anything, they've got to be good at something by the end of the book or the series. You know, you've got to have them grow in some way. Well, and in some <sighs> cases, because Lord of the Rings is like that too, right? With the, the Hobbits. Yeah. Um, sometimes the side characters, you don't even realize it, but your everyday man character is just kind of this vehicle for the plot to drive the plot forward. And as a reader, you're I, like, I was all about Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. I don't care about Frodo. Frodo, <laughs> hairy-footed Hobbit. What? the heck all he did was walk to mortar <laughs> so i mean but that's a conscious thing and i would you know as an earlier author maybe don't try that kind of story you know keep things simple earlier on in your career once you've done more books you know maybe you can get away with it obviously it worked okay for jk rowling i mean 
and then there are two yeah. things there are truths that somebody that's a really good writer that's super entertaining can kind of break a lot of the rules and you just they're the authors you would read them you know that expression like i would listen to him read the phone book or <laughs> read the phone book right because her voice is so sexy and if this author has such a good voice and does enough right you know you you can find lots of rule breakers out there but it's probably yeah. like i said for your first novels probably not the best idea to try to be a rule breaker <laughs> Yeah, Sam is more of a main character than Frodo is. Sam's the one who actually does everything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So things that stop readers from reading current and future books. And then we all um, put our own little lists in here. Mine was not, um, this is the last thing I threw together. So I, mine is not super extensive, but I'm going to go ahead and go first on that. So we've already talked about grammar and editing. If you have bad grammar and editing, that is going to stop people from reading future books. And the only way a lot of people know if they don't have a background in writing, if their grammar and editing is bad, is if they have an editor go over it, but not just any editor. It can't be just somebody that's like, yeah, I'm an editor. It needs to be somebody who's experienced as an editor and has clients and works with people. It can't be just like your aunt who enjoys editing manuscripts that she reads or books that she reads on her Kindle. Um, and then breaking the fourth wall. So things that pop me out of the story in a well-edited book would include too many characters introduced in the first chapter, like I already mentioned. Um, just, just things that kind of make me go, uh, you know, so if, if there's a character who has this opinion that, you know, did not come from that character because it's not there. It's just not them, you know? And then it's like, Oh, I'm, that must've been from the author. So the author's trying to make a point, you know, why is the author trying to make this point to me? That really drives me nuts. And then again, the reader promise, unfulfilled reader promises, not leaving threads for future books. Even if it's a standalone series, having threads in future book for future books is a really great idea. So like in romance, you introduce characters who are going to be the main characters in the next series um, or in the next book or whatever. And then fantasy, even if like cozy mystery where the, where the, the, um, the main thing gets solved that book, you know, I'm thinking actually per, um, Mercy Thompson. So each book, it gets tied up and there's not a lot of loose threads at the end of the book, but her and what's his face's relationship um, that one dude, the alpha dude, oh, goodness, Adam, if their relationship, um, it doesn't get finalized until well into the series. So things like that kept me reading in the very beginning. Um, and then dream sequences and flashbacks that are done poorly. Um, I see, I see huge authors, Dan Brown. Who I just finished reading the law symbol. He starts Robert Langdon's you know, whole scene, the very first introduction to him with a dream. And I'm like, that was the stupidest thing in the world. Like, don't, I mean, I would say don't do dream sequences or major flashbacks that last very long at all until you're experienced enough to know if it's going to work or not. And I'm going to hand things. Um, I'm going to second the uh, not leaving future threads. Like if you don't leave a future thread in your uh, uh, thread for a future event in your book, it's not going to make you stop reading the book, but it's going to make people not dig out the next series or at least or next book in the series, or at least they're not going to feel driven to continue reading when they feel like the story is finished being told. So if you're writing a series, make sure there's some indication of what's coming next. Um, also seconded on, on grammar. Uh, I encountered a book one time where every individual paragraph was one sentence long. It was paragraph sized, but it was one sentence long, these gigantic long sentences. And that was it. Like literally, uh, I couldn't read it. I got five pages in and it's just like, I, I, I'm holding 75 words in my head before I can finally parse the sentence. This, this will not stand. Um, 
characters in general that feel like they're being railroaded by the plot or uh, that their actions are being de- dedicated, uh, dictated, that is, by plot necessity rather than plot arising from natural actions. Uh, that's a thing that I look for very much in my own books. If I feel like these characters are doing things outside their nature just because I need them to to make the plot work, then I need to make the plot work in a different way. And if I encounter a, a character who's just doing a thing that is necessary to move the plot forward, it, it doesn't feel like I'm reading a story anymore. It feels like I'm watching somebody explain what happens. I, it's a small distinction, but it's an important one for me. Uh, if there's no real conflict or no plausible challenge or struggle, uh, talking about Mary Sue's, uh, I, I also read a book where every single challenge presented to the main character was solved instantaneously. And then everyone in the book, uh, complimented that character for doing it. Like it got to a point where it's just like, I don't, I, there's not, there's no tension at all in this. There's no drama at all in this. So, you can have a character who's hyper capable, but then you need to develop a villain or a, a, a struggle that is their equal or else there's the, the story doesn't flow. Uh, lack of growth uh, or continuity from book to book. Um, it stinks to feel like the plot didn't matter. It stinks that if you, you write a story and then in the next story, everyone's right back where they started, unless there was a setback at the end of the first book that put them there. I want to feel like things have been moving forward. If not with uh, every character, then at least with some. If not with the whole story, then at least with a part. But uh, if you if you do an unexplained reset or you just have characters that are continually making the same mistakes and having the same problems and not at least addressing it, you can make it a point of character growth to have them aware that they keep making the same mistakes. Like that suddenly that's introspection, that's self-awareness, that's growth, being aware of lack of growth. And if they don't even do that, then it just feels like these are very static characters and they get stale. And this is a repetition and filler, big problem for me. If I feel like I don't subscribe to the to the opinion that a every single scene has to drive the plot forward, you can have really cool action set piece scenes that didn't necessarily contain plot elements. They're just you know a cool way to get from point A to point B. But if I feel like you decided you needed to make this book a hundred thousand words and it was only seventy five thousand words, so you put in two full chapters of characters talking about unrelated stuff, I could spot those very easily. Uh, make them interesting or make your book shorter. And finally, this is a one particularly for if you're writing a mystery, if you lie to the reader or conceal things uh, that wouldn't realistically be concealed, then that is not helping anybody. Uh, There's many a bad mystery I've read had the uh, protagonist solve the mystery by knowing things that we didn't know. And like foreshadowing is important. And so that's definitely a thing you need to, to have is, Put it all out there, have the reader be interested in it, and then you show off the cleverness by having your your, your character put the pieces together. Yeah, it's like it just almost never works if you have a, any kind of mystery and the protagonist, the POV character, knows it. Like it should just make it easier on yourself. It should be a mystery to the POV character too. You know, it's why Sherlock Holmes was never 
from Sherlock Holmes's point of view. It's easier to make a character seem like a genius and have all the answers if they are not the POV character. Um, all right, so just a few from me here. Reminder, these are things that stop readers from reading the current or future books, or in this case, things that stop me reading because <laughs> we've already established that I'm super picky. So if you can get someone like me on board, you got an easy road ahead, I always feel. <laughs> um, but yeah, some of the things that stop me reading or that keep me from maybe getting past the sample pages and, and downloading paying for the book is not enough conflict or contrived conflict, such as characters fighting for no good reason, like or just personality you know, things that drives me nuts in romance. And it's why, like I said before, I'm such a fan of the characters coming from two different cultures or two different sides of the war, you know, the whole thing that there's a reason that they have some fundamental differences in culture, beliefs, opinions, that kind of thing that really gives them a reason. And it makes it understandable that they're going to have conflict with each other. Like it's super obvious. Of course they have to have conflict. He's a Vulcan. She's a Klingon. <laughs> it's just going to be tough to overcome. And that's what kind of makes it root for them so much more like we like both of them neither of them are the obnoxious person that's just picking a fight or being a jerk for no reason um so those are my favorite romances guys so you that you that write the romances you know what i like you know how to sell them to me uh other thing we talked about kind of the mary sue characters also the goody two shoes are <laughs> there's the book i think it, is it save the cat you know, and I'll see, I'll be reading things from people I'm like, oh, they read that Save the Cat book because here's the, here, the protagonist is doing a nice thing for somebody helping a grandma across the street in the first chapter. And I think that that's kind of can backfire a little bit because they just seem a little bit too, like you're trying so hard to make them likable, but that's not necessary. Um, hopefully they'll be likable on their own merits and not because you really threw this thing in their way to just be an excuse to show how likable they are. The other thing, and this is super hard to um, self-evaluate for, is characters that are just boring. They don't have very much personality. And this is really common and one that keeps me from continuing on. And it's it's like, it's nothing wrong with the writing. Maybe there's nothing wrong with the character. or I mean, there's nothing wrong with the conflict, the world, the story. But it's just, you just... Yeah, they're boring. You like don't really care what happens to them. They're just kind of wallpaper. And that's the, one of the challenges with like the everyday man characters that we were talking about sometimes. Super boring characters. So if you're going to have one of those, hopefully you have a lot of interesting other characters that are uh, going to keep us reading. Um, and another one we already talked about a bit is pacing. Uh, so slow pacing or just not, you know, too much filler, backstory, scenes that aren't moving the plot forward quickly. I guess I may differ from Joe a little bit here. Is like, I will never write a scene that does not move the story forward. I, I think I was just drilled into me as a newer writer. Like scenes should always do like characterization and drive the story forward, you know, and there should be conflict in each scene. So I'm not a fan of just my navel gazing. I use that three times in this podcast. It must be an important concept. Um, another thing that will turn me off, and this is often, you'll find this in epic fantasy a lot, is just too many point of view characters that I'm not interested in. Um, uh, especially like point of views that basically just exist to show what's going on in the villain's camp or to add tension when there's not enough in the protagonist storyline. You know, I always, I've, I've done a lot of stories, a lot of series that have done, you know, well, I'm not, obviously when none of us are saying like, we're the best authors ever and you should be just like us, but you can absolutely write stories with plenty of conflict, plenty of tension without doing any POVs from the villain camp. So it maybe is more challenging, but you, you don't risk the 
reader skipping those sections and then kind of losing some of the important plot stuff and losing it ultimately losing interest in the story because they kind of got lost um so a lack of mystery is something i talked about this earlier on and obviously it's not a requirement to have a mystery outside of your mystery genres but i find as a reader that having a little bit of a mystery will draw me in and make me want to see what happens um sometimes the mystery and the plot are good enough it doesn't matter so much maybe if the characters are a little weaker and i actually find when i'm writing that if I'm not as into it as I think I should be into the story, sometimes that's one of the things I'm like, oh man, there's not really any mystery or anything. It's just a really straightforward action story. So I think like, could I add an element that makes us wondering about the pendant that was handed down from grandmother that she just inherited? Maybe it's going to start giving her visions and, you know, obviously probably that happens more in fantasy than a your non-fantasy stories, although I, I've seen dreams and visions pop up in non-fantasy. Um, and I do want to just end by saying sometimes it's important to accept that some of the things that we as authors and readers personally hate and that would make us throw the book and just hate it and not read any more of the series work fine for other readers and for everybody else. Um, for example, I hate, hate, hate love triangles. <laughs> I usually put the book down at the first whiff that the protagonist cannot make up his or her mind and pick a love interest and be loyal to them. Like that's a super important thing. I like that loyalty between like the hero and heroine. If there's, you know, a romance of any kind, or I like loyalty between the characters that are supposed to have it for each other too. So, um, but that's just me. And, these love triangle things, man, they make conflicts and they work great for some authors. Super big bestsellers have that the whole series. She can't decide which one of the two hot guys that are after her is she going to pick in the end. And uh, that works for some reason. So, you know, just have that awareness as an author that just because you hate something doesn't mean it can't work for the story. And I have to remind myself of that. Too. I mean, I have to write stories I enjoy, but I have to also accept that, okay, Maybe that thing I really hate, other people do not hate because obviously those books over there are selling amazing. So we don't know everything. We're just trying to hopefully give you guys something to think about here. I don't know. I read a book that had a love triangle in it once and that book did so poorly. It's called Twilight. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear, hear it totally bombed. It's a shame because Forks Washington is real pretty. She go up there. People should know about I've, it. I've been there. It was kind of ghetto, actually. <laughs> it used to be like an old logging town or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah Nolan is from he's from you know not too far away from there but they had school events out there regularly and he was like why is she centering this book in forks nothing happens in forks. well it's dark and gloomy because it's the olympic peninsula and it rains all the time so i think if i was a vampire i would totally live in like london or the pacific northwest because it's never <laughs> sunny yeah, yeah so you're safe <laughs> All right, guys. Um, well, I hope this has been helpful for our listeners. Um, and, and a lot of it is going to be things that you you've already heard. Um, but sometimes hearing it from a different person helps cement things in, or maybe triggers an idea or, or something that, you know, you didn't realize was, was a problem in your book and that you can maybe fix going forward or even fix going back whatever <laughs> it is funny how we think we already know it all right because we've written all these novels and we're experienced but how how often i'll catch myself like like i said when something is not i'm like the story is like it's okay but i'm not super into it i'll realize like oh there's no mystery or like oh the the love interest 
would be a better character if he had more agency. Like if he was trying to accomplish something in the story too, and not just the heroine. I'm like, yeah, he's just kind of existing, man. Being <laughs> as I work through my own personal issues here with the, the current stories, <laughs> don't mind me. Um, but yeah, so it's good to be reminded because I think it's so much to hold in your head, like all the things we're all supposed to do all the time as writers, and you know we forget too. So yeah. Um, Joe, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation? Um, I have written down the words informed attribute. Apparently this was something that I wanted to put on my list and forgot to. When you, when you say like, whatever, so-and-so is smart, so-and-so is this, so-and-so is that. And then there's no evidence on the page at all. It's called an informed attribute. And, uh, it's one that the I three constantly... PhDs. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like, she doesn't even give you a fact about neurobiology. <laughs> So like, like just if you, if you have an attribute, have that attribute illustrated in some way besides simply being described as a character. I, if you, if your guy is a race car driver, he better get into a race car at some point or at least have a cool chase scene. So yeah, that's, that's just a point I want to include there. Yeah. That's really awesome. Lindsay, anything else that you wanted to add? I was thinking when I, uh, I wrote down Elon Musk when I was talking about villains because I have a friend that hates him so much because he's such a dumbass on Twitter. If you like, all you know is his tweets, but I'm like, I love him. He's like trying to save the world with electric cars and get us to Mars, you know, like, so that one person's villain is another person's hero. So just think of all the people like that you can think of in the real world. And maybe you model a villain after them. Elon must be a great villain. Would he not? <laughs> <laughs> Nolan Nolan does not love Elon Musk. He's well, like, see, he's, he's so, so polarizing, and that's what makes a great villain or a great hero. Yeah, and Nolan doesn't even care about what he says. He's just like, there's so many crushes on Elon Musk, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> anyway. I, I refrain from mentioning any political people on purpose, so... <laughs> we got some heroes and villains out there too depending on what your point of view is well and most politicians are going to be heroes and villains i mean even you know i mean i don't think there's a politician now who's truly good <laughs> well it's because the media likes the sensational yeah. people the extreme people and i it's crazy because like 80 percent of the country is very centrist you know like we just we want we like some things from this side some things from this side we just want somebody sane but that's not who gets the airtime so you get these options that are super extreme and and you make a good point about the sensational just because we're hearing about them doesn't mean that all the politicians are that way if we're not hearing about them they're probably decent people <laughs> right nobody's following them on twitter because they don't say insane things so yeah, no it's a tough world it's tough to navigate it's tough to be an author you guys will rock it Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, everybody. Um, hope, Like I said, I hope this episode has been helpful for you. Um, if you would like to hear us do more craft episodes, I mean, our main focus is marketing just because you have to be able to market to become a six-figure author. But um, I just recognize that craft is kind of an important part of marketing. Um, if you want to hear us talk more about craft, please let us know in the Facebook group that you can find on Facebook called Six Figure Authors and come and tell everybody that Joe has the best beard. I am so sad. We did have a bunch of people say that I had the best beard after I wore a beard for one of our episodes. <laughs> anyway, we all know I have to trim. Otherwise I'd be right there with Joe. <laughs> you know, the, the women, we, you get older, you got to get some products to take care of things. <laughs> it's tough. Guys do too. Guys got to wash those nose hairs. Those oh, it's get true. Substantial. <laughs> I, eyebrows, ears. I mean, <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, anybody listening still? Probably not. <laughs> should probably close down. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for making it to the end. <laughs> and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And we will talk to you all later. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, everybody. <laughs>